Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. On behalf of myself and our entire team here at the Murthy Law Firm, we welcome you to our topic today to discuss employment-based green card options other than PERM labor certification. This is rather a complicated topic because we talk about many different categories. So we hope that by the end of our 30 or 40 minute discussion that we don't confuse you, but rather clarify certain issues. The main goal in our discussion today is to help you look at candidates and think, I wonder if this particular employee may fit into, for example, a particular category that we will discuss for you today. On my panel, I have two of my brilliant attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Dana DeLott, a senior attorney who has just completed or completing her 10 years as a decade at the Murthy Law Firm, and Kevin Andrews, who's been with us for about five years, uh, even as going through law school and as an attorney. So we are truly delighted to have a fabulous panel with you. As I said, the topic is the green card other than PERM, and so our discussion will include the EB-1 multinational executive transferee, the EB-1 outstanding professor researcher, and before you think that may not apply to me, it does apply to a lot of private companies. And finally, the third one is Schedule A, both groups one and two. These categories each require employer sponsorship, even though you don't have to go through the PERM process. The employer does not have to advertise as we just explained through the PERM process. However, the employer is involved as the petitioner or the sponsoring or the sponsoring employer. And for this reason, it is that we will not discuss the EB-1 extraordinary ability category and the EB-2 national interest waiver, because although these also do not require a PERM labor certification, they do require, uh, they do not require, I'm sorry, employer sponsorship. And because they don't require employer sponsorship, we don't want to use this valuable time to describe it for you all because this is primarily what you as employers can do for your employees. So Dana, why don't we start at the top, which is the EB1C multinational executives or managers. What are some of the common misunderstandings that apply that people need to be aware of? Yes, thank you, Sheila. This category, as you said, we're going to start with common misunderstandings rather than the requirements. Uh, because we just seem to get a lot of these types of questions. First of all, it's not enough for an individual to have had a high-level job or to currently have a high-level job with a multinational company. The category is for transferees. It's intended to allow multinational companies to bring their high-level employees to the U.S. to work for an affiliated company in the U.S. Another misunderstanding that we see quite often is that the, the interplay with the L1A Individuals that have held appropriate positions outside of the U.S. with a multinational company don't necessarily have to be on an L1A to qualify for EB-1. There's significant overlap in the two categories, but they're not identical, and L1A, while commonly used for such individuals, isn't required. And then conversely, simply having an L1A does not necessarily mean that a particular individual is qualified under EB-1 as a multinational executive or manager. For the green card category, the person must have worked abroad for a year for the affiliated company as an executive or high-level manager. For L1A, they have to be able to show that they worked abroad for one year for the company, 
but that might have been in a lower position, and then they may have gotten a promotion to an L1A type position in the U.S. I think this is wonderful, this explanation, because it really explains, I think people often think, oh, I've got an L1A, can I get a green card? And the answer is, well, that depends on what your position is in, was abroad as an executive or manager. Exactly. Thank you, Dana. Okay, Kevin, well, can we go over briefly just sort of a quick overview of the requirements for the EB1C category? Yes, absolutely, Sheila. So the basic requirements, as, as Dana mentioned, there are some, uh, some similarities with the non-immigrant L1A uh, intracompany transferee category. Uh, primarily, the, the foreign worker needs to be employed outside of the United States in either a managerial or an executive uh, capacity. In, uh, the last, in at least one year in the last three years preceding the filing of the actual petition. Um, even if the person is in the United States working on L1A uh, for several years, they would still meet the requirement as long as they met the one year in the last three years of managerial or executive capacity experience prior to their admission into the United States. So um, in addition to the experience requirement, uh, once again, as Dana had mentioned, the employer must be uh, an, the employer must be have an affiliate or a subsidiary uh, in the United States and in the uh, in the foreign uh, location too. So the employer has to have a presence both in the United States and abroad in order to sponsor a foreign worker for the uh, for this category, multinational executive or manager. Um, and finally, the uh, the U.S. employer has to actually be doing business in the United States for at least one year. So uh, just a distinction with the L1A category, there is a, a basis to qualify for L1A if there's a so-called new office that's not been in business for at least a year, uh, but that needs to definitely be demonstrated at the time that uh, the company is ready to file the, uh, the green card position for the multinational executive or manager. So those are some of the basic uh, requirements for the position. And um, in addition to that, uh, as Dana had mentioned, the, uh, the issue of the company needs to be uh, affiliated with uh, – um, the, U the U.S. company needs to be affiliate affiliated with a company abroad, and that ownership, that affiliation, really needs to be analyzed by an attorney to make sure that the case can move forward, to make sure that that U.S. employer is actually a petitioner that would qualify for this category. Right, right. And there are certain joint ventures, where even where there's equal control, you know, any kind of there's certain specific legal requirements that apply. Right. Sometimes that's very straightforward, and sometimes it requires a very detailed analysis. Exactly. Okay, so let me just quickly, quickly, briefly go over the managerial capacity issues. So a lot of times we have managers that come in to and ask for sponsorship for the green card. And to show that, we, we must show that this particular person manages the organization, department, subdivision, or a component of the business. They supervise and control the work of other supervisory professional or managerial employees, or they manage an essential function within the organization and the person has discretion over day-to-day -day operations or the activity of the function or the function. Generally, a first-line supervisor, unless the person is supervising professionals like lawyers or doctors or engineers, and even then the job must be primarily managerial, like a team lead position, where doing a significant percentage of hands-on work will not qualify for this. So a, a, a team lead position where the person is doing a lot of hands-on work might not, apply, might not work, but otherwise you have to show that you are supervising professionals uh, in order to qualify if you are a first-line supervisor. If it is based upon management of a particular function, the person does not have to supervise others, 
but the person must be able to show responsibility for managing an essential function within the business. The person might be managing contractors rather than employees. This can be okay fully documented, but it does require more paperwork and documentation. Dana, what does executive capacity include? Thank you. Um, executive capacity means that the individual must primarily be involved with directing the management of the organization or a component or function within the organization. They should have authority to establish company goals and policies and have wide latitude in that decision making. And any supervision that they receive should be purely from higher level executives, uh, the board of directors, or shareholders. Well, what are the kinds of issues, Dana, that are required to be shown? Uh, one of the really fundamental issues is that, because these are for multinational companies, the company must be able to show that it is continuing to operate abroad. That, for a larger company, is not a significant issue. They, they may have many offices abroad and, and be well-established. But for newer companies uh, seeking to bring perhaps their founder or the top-level person to the U.S., they may have some issues in keeping the, uh, the company abroad operating in the absence of this key player. Uh, we also, this, is, this particular issue that I'm going to speak about next is, is very important. We need to show that the company is sophisticated enough uh, to require and to be able to support uh, a purely managerial and or executive level work. So we need to look at the organizational chart, see who's above this person, see who's below this person, look at the financial situation of the company, uh, because, again, a, a smaller company even sometimes a mid-sized company, um, even the head person might be wearing many hats and still doing essentially day-to-day -day work and not purely executive-type work, um, especially, again, like mom-and-pop type businesses and, and startup companies. It, that's, that's a tough issue. Um, we also must be able to document the past and present work of the individual in significant detail. Um, sometimes descriptions are kind of vague because people are making decisions. They want to be able to see what does this person really do. And then we also have to be concerned about consistency with any prior filings that described the person's experience, typically either the individual L1 petition or perhaps the information that was supplied on the I-129S in connection with a blanket application at the consulate. And as correctly as Dana just said, if it's a smaller company, sometimes a lot more questions or RFEs. It's a red flag for USCIS because really this entire category was originally created for large multinational corporations and of course creative lawyers like all of us have tried to push and push and push the envelope to see how far we can take it. So it's always interesting to see the pushback from the government at times. Well and sometimes with those smaller mid-sized companies they may, to, they may need to wait a little bit, get themselves more on their feet and not file this in year number two or three of operations. And, and as, as, we, as I just explained, these categories have historically been utilized even by entrepreneurs uh, seeking to expand the business into the U.S. So a large company, for example, in India or some other part of the world, wanting to start with a small shop, small operation here in the U.S. Uh, because they want to glo go global, that would be sort of the L1A category that would be the most appropriate in many cases. Again, you would obviously need to sit with your lawyer to figure out other possible options. And... Historically, this has been a viable option for such individuals, many of whom would not have been qualified in all likelihood for other options like the EB-5 investor because that has very strict restrictions, a million dollars, minimum 10 full-time uh, positions, 
or the E2 treaty investors, which again, if a particular country like India is not a member of the, does not have a treaty of trade, friendship, and commerce with the United States, E2 is not an option uh, for nationals of India. We have seen some EB1 cases where the USCIS has actually raised issues of the control of the employee, where there is a sole or large ownership by the individual coming to the United States, the beneficiary. We have heard reports from other attorneys as well regarding this problem. However, it does not appear to be a large-scale trend or a reversal of USCIS earlier policy. It is certainly contrary to the various policy statements that the USCIS and Director Mayorkas have recently been making, as we all have seen in the fall of 2011, regarding facilitating and encouraging entrepreneurship in the U.S., creating jobs, and increasing our U.S. tax base. So that's sort of a big bro overview of the EB-1C. Now let's jump to the EB-1B, which is the Outstanding Professor Researcher category. Kevin, would you briefly go over the basic requirements? Uh, sure, thanks, Sheila. So uh, switching gears, we'll talk about another subcategory of the EB-1 classification, which is the Outstanding Professor or Researcher uh, position. So to qualify that uh, for a national in that classification, would have to demonstrate that they are internationally recognized as an outstanding researcher or professor in a specific academic field. The person would have to have a minimum of three years' experience teaching or in a research capacity in that field. And they should be entering the United States to work in a tenure or tenure-track teaching position or in a comparable research position at a university or institute of higher learning or, and this might be more relevant to some of our listeners, in a comparable research position with a private employer under certain circumstances. So um, the university uh, petitioner is pretty self-explanatory. As I said, it has to be a tenure position or a tenure track position. It can't be a postdoctoral position. It definitely has to be permanent. Uh, but for the private employers, a private employer can file a case for a foreign worker in this category if the private employer has at least three full-time researchers and a uh, demonstrated or, or documented accomplishments in an academic field related to research. Uh, so there's, there is that exception that can be documented for private employers for this uh, particular category. And then I guess all of these positions must be of indefinite duration because for the green card we have to show it's a permanent position, expectation of continued employment, similar to what Kevin just said, tenure, tenure track, same thing applies for the private enterprise. It can be temporary. And an important factor that a lot of people ask is about the three years experience which is gained in teaching or research. Uh, the, the experience can be obtained while working on the advanced degree if the advanced degree is completed and the applicant has either full responsibility for the class taught or the research was recognized as outstanding in the academic field. And it's a very common question that we get asked by a lot of people who just completed their PhD and want to know if they may qualify for this category. So that's an important fact to, factor to remember. Yeah, Sheila, actually, I, um, that's 100% correct. And, uh, you know, the pre-degree teaching experience can be accepted as long as that foreign worker at the time had full responsibility for the course. So mm -hmm. a teaching assistant kind of situ situation might not necessarily apply, but if it was pre-degree experience, they were teaching, and that person had the full responsibility uh, for the course material, that, that experience would count. Okay, sounds great. Dana, coming back to you, what kind of standards or proof in general do we look for? Okay, and actually I'll address this issue that you were just speaking about with the experience while the person is getting their degree. 
everything you said is correct. I'll note that typically if a person only recently got their uh, PhD or their, their final level degree, they probably have not had enough time in the field to reach the level of being recognized internationally. Mm -hmm. That's not the case for everyone because some people have multiple degrees or just incredible work uh, at, at different points in their careers. Uh, but again, typically that person who just completed their degree and doesn't have you know, a, a many years before that uh, is maybe going to have to wait a little bit for this to reach this high level anyway. Uh, just another point on that, Dana. Um, it, well, one thing is that you can definitely combine teaching and research experience to meet the three-year uh, requirement, but the regulations and the, the statute don't actually require a doctorate degree in order to meet this category. You can definitely become an outstanding professor or researcher technically without getting a Ph.D. So, um, I mean, you, you do need to meet the experience requirement, but it's not that, that, that level of degree is not required by regulation or statute. That is true. I just Most of our clients that we work with have yes. them. But yes, but certainly people have other degrees. Um, okay, so moving on to our standards, again, the person has to be able to prove that they are, or the beneficiary has to be able to prove that they have been recognized internationally as outstanding in their particular academic field. And this is one of those categories where we have a laundry list of, of requirements, which I will not just uh, read out, uh, but we need to have two out of a list of six requirements, and these are these are um, qualifications such as the receipt of major prizes or awards, uh, memberships in select organizations where you have to be invited, not just paying the dues, published material in various media about the particular individual uh, and their work. That does not mean the person's article. That means other coverage of the person's work. Uh, sometimes we can also show that they are, uh, they've worked as a judge of others' work. Um, and then particularly for our, our PhD type researchers, we need proof of original scientific research and also typically those individuals will be able to meet the requirement of authorship of scholarly books and articles in their fields. And additionally, even if you meet two out of the six, this is really sort of key in this category, um, that alone is not enough. It's not enough to have a couple articles and maybe, uh, you know, uh, have, have come up with some results, um, we, the evidence has to be able to establish the fact that the person has international recognition as outstanding. Um, and with that, it's not enough to just have work in a couple of different countries. That's not international recognition. The USAIS will regard that as being international exposure. It's very interesting. At one time, we thought we would be so clever by pointing out all of these international, uh, you know, an article or a publication or seminar or conference outside, but they're trying to You want play the international game. level conferences, international level journals, etc. that kind of international recognition, um, not just a, a couple of things in a couple different countries. Right, right. Um, I know many of you feel that this is not a category that will be particularly useful for you, but we would be remiss if we didn't briefly touch upon a memo that the USCIS issued uh, back in December of 2010, so fairly recently in the scheme of things. And this particular memo relied upon a case known as Kazarian versus the USCIS. Under this memo, USCIS adjudicators are instructed to follow a two-step analysis, both for the outstanding professor researcher cases and for extraordinary ability. So what are the two steps? Step one, the US, uh, the person must establish and satisfy the USCIS, not just that two out of the six criteria, for example, are satisfied in the outstanding professor researcher, but more important, that 
the adjudicator must review the evidence as a whole to determine if the candidate or the beneficiary meets the overall standard in the category, namely international recognition is outstanding. And this, what we call Kazarian memo, has generated a great deal of controversy, and many immigration lawyers, including us at our firm, have challenged and hold, take the position that USCIS has misinterpreted the law and misunderstood how they need to look at these criteria. Um, this memo has had an impact nationally, and while we at the Murthy Law Firm are not experiencing any kind of a lower approval rate uh, at our firm, we are generally getting, dis you know, in dis during discussions and calls with other lawyers, we understand that many RFEs um, and denials are being issued, so it's very important to really spend a great deal of time making a determination whether to accept a case. Not everyone who knocks on our door and says, here's the money, file my case for me, should be, uh, you know, taken with open arms because in the end our names and reputations as law firms and lawyers are impacted and it's very important because the individual, the company, the individual will feel that if the case doesn't get approved that we wasted so much money not getting uh, the approval. So we're very, very selective, we're careful and we do this to protect each of you as companies and as individuals with respect to processing and providing the best possible strategies and incorporating the latest issues because USCIS has now said, because of all the pushback, that they may reconsider the memo, but as so far, nothing has been modified or retracted. Moving on to another very important category, which is referred to as the Schedule A, and there's Group 1 and 2, and Dana and uh, Kevin are both going to speak a little bit, but Dana is going to provide us a brief overview of the Schedule A uh, groups in general. Okay, thank you, Sheila. Schedule A, uh, to start with, this is a Department of Labor determination. The Department of Labor has granted a blanket determination for uh, Schedule A Group 1, which are physical therapists and professional nurses, and they've also granted the same blanket determination for Group 2, which are individuals with exceptional ability in the sciences, arts, and performing arts. And what that means is that they have a blanket determination that there are not sufficient workers who are willing, able, and qualified to do the available jobs in those categories. That allows the employer to bypass the normal PERM application process uh, because, again, the Department of Labor is satisfied that having this worker will not adversely affect the U.S. labor force. Therefore, those positions are considered to be pre-certified, and we can essentially skip past the labor certification process. Employers using this will file directly with the USCIS, and then the rest of the determination will be up to the USCIS to determine whether the, all the requirements are met. Um, as mentioned, the basic requirements for Schedule A, the petitions are broken down into Group 1 for physical therapists and professional nurses, and Group 2, again, for persons of exceptional ability. Um, people in Group 1, the nurses and physical therapists, they, their employers couldn't use the normal PERM process even if they wanted to for some reason. I don't particularly know why they would, but they, they can't do it even if they want. Um, they have to use the Schedule A requirements. Uh, however, people in Group 2, if their employer thought for some reason it was more beneficial to, to go through the standard labor cert process, they could do that. And Kevin is going to discuss 
group two first because it has uh, a fair amount of overlap with the outstanding professor researcher category that we just discussed. Right, and I think the real issue with group two, which might be, by the way, applicable to many, many companies and businesses where a person may not have a master's degree necessarily, because I think that's the crux of the issue. That's when people come to us. That's when companies and individuals come to us and say, I don't have a U.S. master's or an Indian master's degree. Uh, but I have 10 years of work experience, I have licensure, I'm considered top-notch in my field because of A, B, C, and D, so there's a very good chance that they will meet the definition of exceptional ability as allowed under Schedule A Group 2, and that's why this is probably the most important section for almost every employer, every company, whether it's a technology company, a high-tech worker, an engineer, almost everybody who wouldn't cleanly qualify into the EB2 category. So, Kevin, then, as Asena said, you know, would you just briefly go over some of the criteria so that employers can see if they could recommend this for their uh, key, key employees? Yes, absolutely, Sheila. So, uh, exceptional ability, the Schedule A Group 2 uh, determination, is it's a little confusing because exceptional ability to DOL has a completely different definition as exceptional ability, the same exact term, with USCIS. So, just to take a step back, with a Schedule A determination, this is, uh, this is getting past the first step with DOL. So as many of you know, the green card process is typically a three-step process where first you test the labor market uh, with the filing of a PERM application. You typically do recruitment. And then the second step is filing the I-140 immigrant petition. And then finally, when the foreign national is eligible, when their priority date becomes current, filing the green card application itself, the I-485. So this addresses the first step with DOL. Typically, you have to demonstrate to DOL that there are no potentially qualified U.S. workers uh, for the position, but in this situation, DOL says that these cases are pre-certified. So with the Group 1, which we'll talk about in a minute, it's based on occupation, as Dana had mentioned. So professional nurses, physical therapists, they're pre-certified by virtue of their occupation. For Group 2, uh, people, foreign workers of exceptional ability in sciences, arts, or performing arts, they're, they're pre-certified based on their accomplishments. And it's different from the USCIS exceptional ability. Again, for purposes of Group 2, the goal is to get a pre-certified labor certification so that you don't have to go through recruitment and can proceed to the I-140. For USCIS exceptional ability, uh, the goal is to obtain EB-2 classification. So you can file a Schedule A Group 2 position for an EB-3 uh, classification, or you can do the same exact thing for an EB-2 classification. The difference, though, in the latter scenario is that you'd have to demonstrate to USCIS uh, that this foreign worker has exceptional ability based on their definition of exceptional ability. So the, it's best to think of exceptional ability as a homonym. DOL has a definition. USCIS has a definition. They're two completely different things. So now that so I've... we don't submit this just directly with the USCIS at the I-140 stage for the Schedule A Group 2? You do, but... The USCIS needs to – now, again, with Schedule A Group 1, the determination that this is a pre-certified labor is just based on the occupation. If this person is a physical therapist, if this person is a professional nurse, they simply cannot test the labor market. They have to file a Schedule A. Uh, group 2, exceptional ability, there, you know, there's criteria, and you know, it's a little bit grayer, so there's a determination. And I'll get into what those factors are, those requirements are. I think what, I think what Kevin's trying to explain is that the – Department of Labor has pre-certified the exceptional ability individuals, but this decision on whether it makes sense to try to meet the USCIS definition of exceptional ability, that really revolves around, okay, when you're ready to file your I-140, which box do you check? Do you check the EB-2 box for exceptional ability, or do you go for EB-3 
That's absolutely where, right. Because the person doesn't have those degrees. Do you argue about it or not? That's absolutely right. So let me first tell you the requirements, and then maybe we can do some examples to kind of illustrate. So the, uh, the requirements for Schedule A Group 2, again, this is someone who has exceptional ability in sciences, arts, or performing arts, needs to have international recognition or acclaim in one of those fields, number one. Number two, they need to be, uh, have worked in the past year in, that, uh, in one of those fields in a capacity that requires exceptional ability, and the future employment will also require uh, the exceptional ability. And then the third requirement is that you need to meet two out of seven regulatory criteria. And, you know, it's a similar laundry list. I won't go through uh, them in detail, but basically receipt of international prizes, membership in, you know, organizations, kind of like what Dana was saying about the uh, outstanding researcher, professor, uh, published material. Is just membership without worrying about it being outstanding, just so if I join? Actually, you would need to demonstrate some outstanding achievement for okay. it. So in a lot of ways, Schedule A Group 2 is maybe, depending on the facts, depending on the case that walks through the door, might even be more difficult to demonstrate than EB11, the, ex- the extraordinary ability. So practically, uh, the, this use of Schedule A Group 2 um, might only happen for a very small group of, of, uh, of cases, but, you know, it's, it's a tool in the toolbox to use. So, uh, again, some of those other uh, criteria, you know, recognition of achievements, significant contributions, memberships in a professional uh, organizations, uh, associations, rather, or just other comparable evidence to demonstrate that you are um, someone of exceptional ability, uh, exceptional ability, authorship, things like that. So um, that is basically what the exceptional ability group two uh, position is, uh, uh, classification is about. And, again, it's distinguished from EB2 uh, exceptional ability, which is a separate thing, and uh, just it, it's too, it, they're mutually exclusive. So you theoretically could file a case. Well, let, let's do an example. Let's say you filed a case for a, uh, a Bill Gates type of person. Bill Gates, uh, well, again, Bill Gates is a U.S. citizen, but let's assume that he's not for, for a moment. Very brilliant guy, went to Harvard, but he dropped out. So he has 30 years of experience, and a Bill Gates type of person comes to you and says, I would like to do a green card case. What can I do? Theoretically, you might be able to file a Schedule A Group 2 position for this person if they have international recognition. I think somebody who invented Windows might qualify for something like that, who had been working the past year and intends to work in the future in this, uh, s- this same field, uh, which would be a science-related field, and can meet one of the two out of the seven regulatory criteria. So if you can meet that, that person would not have to have a labor uh, f- a case filed for them. They were pre-certified, so they can proceed to the I-140 stage. Now we're looking at a position that does not require an advanced degree. So under that, under advanced degree, it wouldn't be able to file for EB-2. One of the alternative bases for meeting EB-2 is if you are a, once again, foreign national of exceptional ability. But now we're looking at what USCIS determines to be exceptional ability, completely related but completely separate from what DOL considers. USCIS would take a look at that case, which has already been pre-certified, to determine from, in their view, if this Bill Gates type of person has exceptional ability. They would look at three out of six regulatory criteria. I'll spare the details, but it's basically, you know, 10 years of full-time experience, a license to practice, uh, you know, in the profession if it's, if it's relevant, membership in professional organizations, uh, so on and so forth. And this is where many people may qualify, many smart, say, software engineers that don't have a master's degree, for example, or just three years of a college degree may be able to qualify because that's how sometimes we're able to do an EB2 exceptional ability filing under Group A Schedule 2 right. compared well, to 
Right, absolutely. So you can do both, or you can do one or the other. So you can do both where you file the Group 2 so I don't have to test the labor market, and then get EB2 where I demonstrate to USCIS that this person is deserving of the EB2 classification. So for EB2 exceptional ability, you need to, be, uh, uh, you need to have a degree of expertise that's, quote-unquote, significantly above what's norm- ordinarily encountered in science, business, or arts, and then meet three of the, out of the six regulatory criteria that Kazarian memo that uh, you were mentioning, Sheila, this comes into play because now USCIS will take a look at the totality of the evidence to make sure that you meet that Kazarian two-step analysis. It's not enough under the Kazarian memo, uh, which we've still had a lot of success in dealing with, but it's not enough according to that memo to just meet the regulatory criteria. You need to meet the, also the totality of the circumstances uh, criteria. And we are getting some cases where we see people that are significantly above, based on their contributions, based on the unique contributions that they've made in their fields, even if they don't have the actual, you know, advanced degree to, uh, to, to meet EB2 under that basis. Okay, thank you, Kevin. And would you just briefly describe what science or art means? Uh, yes, absolutely. So, uh, again, that's another distinction about Schedule A Group 2 and the EB2 exceptional ability. So, sci- uh, so science, arts, and uh, actually even performing arts, Sheila, can come into play with Schedule A Group 2. So, you, you know, your basic sciences, uh, I mean, arts can be pretty, uh, pretty broad. What's interesting here is that uh, business is not a field of study that's recognized for Schedule A Group 2, but it is recognized for EB2 exceptional ability. So there's a distinction there. Okay, so, so Dana, I think that Kevin's sort of gone over and described the criteria by and large, but I don't know if you want to quickly briefly touch upon what it is that can be satisfied to, to, to meet the, the requirements. Uh, I, again, I, I believe Kevin has covered most of that and gone through our, our list of the typical requirements with the um, publications, awards, uh, evidence uh, that the work has been recognized by experts, etc. And really, that's something that needs a pretty detailed analysis by um, by an attorney to, to see whether we think it will meet that criteria. Okay. And one other thing that uh, I just want to distinguish between Schedule A Group 2 and EB2 exceptional ability is that the, uh, another classific- or another field that has been kind of carved out recently with the passage of PERM is for Schedule A Group 2 is in the performing arts. So I think Schedule A Group 2 might work uh, out maybe for like a, you know, maybe a movie director or like a Hollywood Dance, type of person, musician, dancers, who maybe they don't have sustained international recognition, which or might be required for EB1. Degrees, for example. And absolutely may not have the degree. But uh, in performing arts is one of those sub uh, uh, fields that are, uh, that you can qualify for Schedule A Group 2. And the, and the criteria for that is a little bit different. And I think, Sheila, you wanted to talk about that? Yeah. Well, so as, as Kevin was saying, you can show documenta- documentary evidence of a person being exceptional in the performing arts with information like the widespread acclaim and recognition and receipt of internationally recognized prizes, published materials about this person, such as critical reviews in newspapers, journals, magazines, etc., and evidence of high earnings with claimed with the claimed level of experience, playbills and star billings, you know, outstanding reputation of the particular theater or concert hall where they're going to be performing, Kennedy Center versus your local, you know, uh, bar theater <laughs> bar and grill down the road. And evidence attesting to outstanding reputation of theaters or repertoire companies, ballet troops, you know, uh, the orchestras, etc., that we've talked about. Um, so do you want to go over briefly, Kevin, just the kinds of documents to file for a physical therapist? 
schedule a petition or uh, a professional nurse? Yes, absolutely. So going back to uh, Group 1, again, again, Group 1 is based on occupation. It's not based on so much the, you know, whether or not the person is exceptional. And the occupation is right now recognized by DOL. Uh, to be a shortage where there is absolutely, no matter where in the country, there's not going to be a displacement of any potentially qualified U.S. workers are for physical therapists and professional nurses. So uh, when you file a petition for either of these uh, categories, you would still file a labor uh, certificate, uh, 9089 form, the, the labor certification form. You're just not following one that was submitted to the Department of Labor. There's still a notice of posting requirement that needs to be met, and the prevailing wage needs to be, you know, prevailing wage requirement still applicable. There's just no recruitment for these types of positions. Uh, for professional nurses, they, can, they include all different types of nurses, registered nurses, uh, nurse practitioners, certified nurse practitioners. They do not include LPNs or nursing assistants, so that's a key distinction to uh, think about when you're looking at the, uh, the kind of employees that you're, that you're sponsoring. Uh, the requirements for the professional nurse are the... At the beginning, the person needs to have uh, some sort of licensure, and by the end, there needs to be uh, a visa screen. So the, we'll, we'll spare you the details, but for the most part, uh, there is a commission on graduates of foreign nursing schools, uh, so-called CGFNS, which is a test that the uh, prospective nurse can take in order to get qualified for the position. This is pretty common because this is a test that's administered overseas. I know in the Philippines and Indians where we get a, main, uh, a good stream of nursing uh, workers here in the United States, uh, CGFNS is fairly common. You can also get an unrestricted license to practice nursing in the state of intended employment. So if you're already here on some other non-immigrant capacity, maybe that would be the track for uh, for your worker. Um, and then there's also another exam called the Na- uh, uh, administered by the National Council for Licensure and Examination for Registered Nurses. Also, it's called the NCLEX. Um, and that's another basis to get the license to meet the licensure requirement to practice nursing in the United States. Um, that's something that needs to be done at the beginning of the process. Uh, the foreign worker needs to have that at, at the beginning of the process. And then by the end, uh, there's a visa screening process, um, uh, which, which uh, once filed, uh, is, is valid for five years. Uh, main thing here is it uh, requires an English fluency of the applicant since they're going to be working in, a, you know, in the medical field dealing with clients. Uh, th- there is some limited exception to the fluency exam for certain Western countries, uh, presumably because they speak English already well in you know, Australia, UK, Ireland, etc., um, so those are the basic requirements to meet the uh, Schedule A Group 1 uh, uh, determination. Okay, thank you very much, Kevin. I know that we, there are some nuances about issues with respect to employment categories and issues between physical therapists and nurses, which I think Dana will briefly touch upon. Right. And as we mentioned, Schedule A is a Department of Labor determination. Um, you will not see... Schedule A is neither EB2 or EB3. You have to pick the right category for your particular case. You will not see Schedule A on the visa bulletin uh, anymore. It was there briefly, but it's, it's again, these cases are either usually EB2, EB3. Um, the, as we said, even though the, the positions for physical therapists and nurses don't require filing with the Department of Labor, you're still doing the labor certification form and then filing the I-140 petition with the USCIS and selecting the appropriate category. Typically, physical therapists at this point um, are going to fit within EB-2 because there have been changes in the requirements and only the graduate degree physical therapist programs are now accredited. Um, Nurses, typically EB-3, occasionally EB-2, and the reason that nurses are typically EB-3 is that the registered nursing uh, qualification can be obtained with 
as little as two years of training uh, in, a, in an associate's degree program, uh, even though many nurses have much more training in reality. Uh, the exceptions to those rules are for particular advanced nurse practitioner positions that require uh, at least a bachelor's degree, and therefore uh, employers may want to look at that uh, if they have um, various specialized nurses on their staffs. Okay, great. Thank you very much. As you can see from this broad overview where we've gone over the three major categories, namely the outstanding professor researcher, the multinational executive manager, and the schedule A group one, one and two, where you need an employer, you need sponsorship, but the category and the criteria has a lot of gray area and there's a lot of complexities uh, and even those of us that live and eat and breathe U.S. immigration law from morning to night, sometimes we go back and say, okay, is this person exceptional or is it Schedule A Group 2 exceptional or EB2 fits into one of the national interest waiver categories or some other category to see how to fit a square peg into a round hole, how to qualify a particular individual in a certain category so that the person has the best chance for success because as employers, at the end of the day, you want to keep your creme de la creme, your top-notch employees, happy and make them feel that you are trying to explore the best possible options to keep them here safely and for the long term, hopefully working for you and your business and your company and not for your competition down the road. And of course... It would be remiss if I didn't put in a plug, which is if you want to work with the best of the best in the country, you know the Murthy Law Firm, www.murthy.com is here. We can guide you. We can go over the options with you in a consultation or discussion. We have the free Murthy Bulletin articles. We have our monthly uh, teleconferences like this that you're participating in and different avenues. And we also have the free 10 minutes that you are welcome to contact our office to go over if you're looking to hire us so that we can explore that with one of our incredibly knowledgeable, smart, and sharp attorneys. Uh, thank you so much for participating. We sure look forward to helping you. Have a great day.